0: Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things policy analysis and international affairs.
1: In today's episode, we explore the implications of an independent Kurdistan in the aftermath of a referendum held by the Kurdistan regional government on September 25th of this year. The Kurds are a distinct ethnic group in the Middle East with a population of approximately 30 million people. Lacking a state of their own, the Sunni Muslim Kurds are divided between several states. There are approximately 15 million in Turkey, 8 million in Iran, almost 2 million in Syria, and 5 a half million in Iraq, which will be the focus of today's episode. Many Iraqi Kurds live in the semi-autonomous northeastern state of Iraqi Kurdistan, replete with its own governing body and parliament. The Kurdish Regional Government, or KRG, has been an important partner in post-Saddam Iraq and, more recently, the fight against ISIS. On September
0: 25th, the KRG held a referendum for full independence from Iraq. An overwhelming 92 percent reportedly voted in favor. The Iraqi government of Prime Minister Abadi was swift to respond, calling the referendum illegal and in contravention of the Constitution. On October 16th, the Iraqi military forcibly retook the oil-rich city of Kirkuk, which had been in Kurdish control since the Iraqi military folded before ISIS in 2014. It is not a recognized part of Iraqi Kurdistan, despite Kurdish historical territorial claims. And most other regional powers have also responded negatively to the referendum, in particular Turkey, which has a Kurdish population of approximately 15 million. On October 25th, Abadi met with Turkish President Erdogan, together reaffirming their opposition to a Kurdish secession. That same day, the KRG offered to freeze the referendum, but al-Abadi ultimately rejected the offer, saying that he was unwilling to accept anything but its complete annulment. KRG President Masoud Barzani announced on October 29th that he will not seek an extension of his term following November 1st. In a TV address, he defended his decision to hold the
1: referendum. To shed more insights onto this topic, we sat down today with Dr. Besma Momani. Just a note, the situation is moving quickly and it's likely that there will have been several key developments since recording this episode. Dr. Momani is
0: a senior fellow of the Center for International Governance and Innovation. She holds a PhD in political science with a focus on international political economy and is a professor at the Balsillie School of International Affairs and the University of Waterloo. Dr. Momani is a 2015 fellow of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Doha Center, and a Fulbright scholar. She has been a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington D.C. and a visiting scholar at Georgetown University's Mortara Center.
1: Dr. Momani, thank you so much for joining us today. This is Nicole. Hi Nicole, my pleasure. So I guess we'll just start the discussion with some broad background here. So if you could tell us a bit more about who exactly are the Kurds and what makes them so distinct in the Middle Eastern region?
2: Well, the Kurdish people are often said to be the largest ethnic community without a state of their own. Now, that's not true, but it's uh, notoriety for being that. And I think um, this is... Uh, One thing that's interesting about the Kurdish people of 30 million is that they're spread out along four different countries. Um, And so Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria is where they predominantly inhabit. And they have had a quest, I would say, for self-determination in their own statehood uh, for at least 100 years when the modern Middle East states were created and were never granted as such, and have often been the victim of um, let's say politicking, um, both at the regional level and at the international level, um, when trying to have their own state.
0: And throughout the Kurds' history, we see that at the fall of the Ottoman Empire, as well as in 1983, Kurdish people came very close to having their own, their own defined territorial state. And what has, what has led to that, and what has been keeping the Kurds from having a fully-established, autonomous state of their own, in your opinion? Well, I think it's, you know,
2: partly there's a there's a bit about timing here. Um, and, of course, the international system is not often in favor of separatist movements or secession. Uh, we tend to have a very static view of the international state system, where we believe the borders that were drawn, you know, um, and, and whether in the case of the Middle East, often the 1930s, should be the same boundaries that exist forever time. And so the Kurds are a disadvantage because of history.
0: And in your piece, you wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail, The Kurds Have Opened Pandora's Box. And when you say that, you delve a lot into the regional actors that are at play. Can you, can you elucidate what you had set up in that article before and maybe, maybe go a bit deeper?
2: yeah and i i think the kurds you know they've um they do feel that particularly in their own current fight against isis they've really proven their self worth and their frankly their 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 right to self determination and so they've been very emboldened by that and they've been given lots of i think you know um sort of hints here, winks here and there from various world leaders that they will get a state of their own if they participate in the fight against ISIS. And so I think they were led to, they were, they were misled, and I think that that has emboldened them. Um, and of course, the the geopolitics of the region are just not in their favor to have their own state. So this is not an indictment on whether or not they deserve a state of their own. That's um, not the the... Uh, the the purpose of, of my op-ed, but just to say that you know they have a lot of hopes and dreams, like Pandora's box, and uh, I know they've opened it in trying to have their the referendum. But unfortunately, the international community is such that they will again uh, be the victims of duplicity
0: as they have in the past, and unfortunately,
2: we see that playing out today.
0: We'll have more with Dr. Momani after a quick break. listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Uh, too early to weigh in on hypotheticals, particularly uh, since as a Quebecer, I'm very sensitive to other countries weighing in on uh, internal decisions
2: uh, around the future of a country or separation questions. I uh, was involved in two uh, two referendum campa- campaigns in Canada, uh, where uh, we very much appreciated uh, uh, foreign interlocutors not weighing in on what Quebecers should be choosing and what uh, Canadians should be choosing. um, And I'm going to respect the process in place.
1: So as you heard, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau refused to weigh in on the Kurdish independence referendum. He notes that it would be similar to other countries bringing up Canada's history with Quebec's demands for sovereignty. And Quebec independence has influenced Canadian foreign policy in other instances this year. Uh, Trudeau has previously refused to comment on a similar referendum in the Spanish region of Catalonia.
0: Now, (laughs) going a bit further into the regionalization and recognizing that the Kurdish ethnic groups are not necessarily unified. They have separate political parties in different states and they've talked to different states on different levels. We have the KDP, the Puk, and the PKK, among others. Do you find that this lack of unity is one of those ducks they need to get in a row to come to the table in a more serious way than maybe this referendum was put forward. Oh,
2: absolutely! In fact, I mean everything from what happened in Kirkuk, uh, you know, which where there was uh, an Iraqi, you know, federal government takeover of disputed territory was possible because of the, uh, you know, fissures within the the Kurdish rank, uh, specifically. Um, you know, the the PUK basically allowing the Iraqi army to go forward and, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the the, the Goran group and others who don't want to see, um, or the Talibanis don't, who want to see the Barzanis, you know, take credit for this. I mean, you know, there's so many layers of divisions. As you noted, those are just the political groupings, but there's also, you know, huge ideological differences, um, even... Subtleties in um, in dialect. I mean, you know, it's often misunderstood that um, you know, although there's a, of course, a Kurdish connection across borders, but you know, Syrian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds are have a very different dialect. Some would say they don't necessarily, you know, speak the same or have the same subculture. So there is a division amongst them, and they've been unfortunately. Um, that's been used against them. So there has been divide and rule, um, you know, that worked in the favor of other powers, definitely, um, against Kurdish interests. Uh, but you know, I don't, I wouldn't blame the lack of success in the referendum solely, or the lack of success in uh, the Kurdish fight for self-determination solely on internal divisions, because I do think they have been. You know they have been sidestepped, they have been shortchanged, and they've been, I think, um, deceived many times by international power. So they've been used as much as they have in their own um, in their own internal uh, politics. Uh, you know, divided themselves as well.
0: Would you say that states such as Iraq and the state that Iraq is in now? having to face so many different issues in terms of redevelopment, establishing infrastructure, you know, fighting against ISIL ISIS and several coalitions, and now dealing with this Kurdish issue. Would you say that that power vacuum and that reestablishment of national power is what opened up this Pandora's box or do you see it coming from different angles?
2: Well, I would say that, you know, there is definitely, uh, and, and part of the wrong timing is also that there is a resurgence of nationalism in Iraq itself. I mean, the, you know, I think five years ago, even two years ago, if you went to Iraq, you would find some of the most ardent self-critics within Iraq talking about how the state is, uh, there's no such thing as an Iraqi identity, and um, or even just, you know, commenting about all of the follies of Iraq. Well, the fight against ISIS did something that, you know, no modern Iraqi leader, you know, other than those who have forced it uh, among, you know, upon uh, the Iraqis like Saddam Hussein and others. You know, Iraqi nationalism is, was so heightened, um, and particularly this past, you know, six, seven months and in, in, in the very, I think, successful efforts of the Iraqi army in liberating so many areas against uh, from ISIS that, um, you know, it was really hard to see that um, someone like Abadi, you know, the Prime Minister could in any way uh, accept, you know, giving up territory to the Kurds, in particular around Kirkuk. I mean it was just again part of the wrong timing, um, because nationalist tensions are so or nationalist fervor I should say are so high, um, that this idea that after such a heroic effort of the Iraqi army they would just simply give away Kirkuk was just unacceptable to the vast majority of the Iraqi population.
0: And how would you describe this resurgent nationalism? Is it new? Is it based on old threads? Because there are plenty of minorities in, in the area as well, such as Assyrians, Turkmen, and Yazidis adding into this mix. How does, what does the new Iraqi nationalism look like? Well, it's definitely,
2: without a doubt, a primarily um, Arab narrative, um, even some would argue a Shia narrative, although that's a bit, I think, unfair. It, you know, there and how you how I see it, I mean, I, I, I often see Iraqi television and just the sort of war propaganda um, of these heroic Iraqi military and how they've been able to liberate this territory. I mean, the nationalistic songs. Uh, you know, all of this just you would not find on state television, you know, a few years ago, or even some of these private channels. I mean, there's just this enormous outpouring of of of, of nationalist sentiment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think one of the attempts that Abadi, and Abadi's been a very, I think, you know, fascinating leader, and, and uh, I think he, I, I actually agree with much of what he's done. Um, you know, he's really tried to to Speak in the in the language of Iraqi nationalism as a state project and not as an ethnic one or a linguistic one. And so he has been very careful at trying to cultivate, um, you know, that the Yazidis, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, so many of our, the minority groups, Assyrians and others, that they belong to the Iraqi state, that that's very much, you know, state nationalism, and again, not an ethnic one. I think that's probably uh, genuine on his part. Um, Do Yazidis and all of the other minorities feel it? That's something you would have to sort of ask them. You know, there have been, for example, reports at the time, for example, of the referendum of many of these ethnic minority groups, you know, pointing out that they don't want to live under KRG rule, that they want to actually live in a, you know, democratic, Uh, multi-ethnic, multilingual states like Iraq, uh, and that the KRG actually offered them only sort of a, uh, you know, fit into the Kurdish state or or else. And, of course, that's not what some of these minorities want. Now, that's, you know, the evidence that I saw on social media. I'm sure there are plenty who would be very happy to stay under the KRG, but that's something that I think stood out uh, in my mind. Uh, Of course, the Turkmen, which is, again, a very large community as well, um, were very uh, supportive of the Iraqi federal police or, or army coming in um, and, in their words, liberating them from uh, what they saw as the KRG or Peshmerga forces. So, yes, there are many layers to this, absolutely, and um, ethnic minorities in the country just you know, add to the complexity of why I think it was even more difficult to get um, KRG independence
1: we've mentioned many times now that this doesn't seem to be the right conditions or the right time for a referendum. So why do you think the KRG decided to hold a referendum now? What in particular drove them to think that this was the time to have the election or the referendum? Sorry.
2: Oh, I think it's clear that it was Barzani, uh, the prime minister of the Kurdish regional government, that felt it was the right time because it was the right time for him and his legacy. Um, You know, again, aging, he has been without a mandate for two years, hasn't had the parliament sit in two years, um, wanted this to be his legacy. Um, and, you know, I think uh, did get some, you know, there was a little bit of unity uh, in sort of non-KRG uh, areas or in areas not held by Barzani and, and by his rivals for a short period. But I think the, the Kirkuk sort of um, operation I mentioned earlier, where they allowed the the Iraqi army to come in, it was an example that, in fact, the fissures were a lot wider than we had thought. Um, and they, they, they basically crossed uh, Barzani. And there are many Kurds now who blame Barzani for, uh, you know, for ill-timed referendum, uh, for doing this for his own personal benefit and for his family's benefit, which, again, is a very, very much, you know, it controls uh, the KRG like his own personal fiefdom, um, and that, uh, you know, this is not conducive to the, you know, democratic evolution of a Kurdish state.
1: We'll conclude our conversation with Besma Mulmani right after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.PolicyTalksPodcast.com.
0: Frankly, quite disgusting accusations. Um, Everything that has happened until now has been the result of a short-sighted policy by the Kurdish leadership. And after such a tragedy, I expected the Kurds to unite and to come forward with a solid, single voice, a united voice. But unfortunately, like so many times before, rather than doing this, the different Kurdish factions have decided to blame each other, to cause baseless accusations on each other, and divert the attention of the international community from the real problem. That was Bafel Talabani, son of the late Iraqi president Jalal Talabani. Several media outlets report that Bafel, one of the senior members of the PUK Kurdish faction, made a deal with the Iraqi government and withdrew his forces from Kirkuk. In the clip taken from an interview with France 24, Bafel highlights the fractured nature of Kurdish politics and directly blames it for Iraqi Kurdistan's current difficulties, which is not an uncommon claim. Do you think that the resulting the resulting annulment by the federal government in response to Kurdistan seeming or the Kurdish offering of an olive branch in the freeze to open dialogue and to discuss, was that a result of those personalities coming against each other and, and the federal government just being offended that this was done in, in quite a quick and, and decisive manner? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think, And again, unfortunately,
2: uh, I think Abadi was really put in a corner because, you know, he, I think, is a centrist and is probably, um, you know, naturally one that supports conciliation and I think thinks in this very inclusive uh, manner. But, you know, his greatest rival is someone like Nouriel Maliki, who is, uh, you know, in my opinion, a right winger, uh, very intolerant of what I think are uh, the other you know facets of that of, of Iraq's multiculturalism, and so that's the the pull. The pull was from the right wing that basically, uh, you know, kept pushing Abadi to 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 be tough uh, and to not accept, you know, any sort of um, sort of uh, step down by Barzani, but to to go all out. So I think that, you know, like politics, we know that it's it's often not just one's actions, but you're often reacting to the political forces of, of the national sentiment. And that's where Iraq is. It's quite nationalistic. It's, you know, being pulled by a right-wing Iranian-backed uh, leader like Maliki, who is vying for Abadi's job and is trying to embarrass Abadi at every turn. And sort of him saying things like he's, you know... Um, you know that a body will give away Kirkuk unless you know we stand up and take it back, and all of that sentiment was just, I think, more fodder um, for for those uh, you know ultranationalist elements in the country that a body had to contend with.
1: So, given the challenges we've discussed facing the referendum, if it doesn't work, what other options do the Kurdish people have for independence?
2: Well, it's a tough one, right? I mean, I think that uh, it's, it's, as we see throughout the globe today, whether we're talking about Catalonia, Milan, um, other parts of the world that have flirted with this, you know, it's not an easy sell to the international community. And I think the Kurds have even a tougher sell than many others. Um, You know, they don't have, they're, they're landlocked. They don't have access to resources. They're highly, highly dependent on the Iraqi federal state for transfer payments. In the Canadian parlance, they are a have-not province and receive a lot of equalization payments from the Iraqi state. So, you know, they don't even have a fiscal, you know, contingency plan to how they will survive uh, without the Iraqi state. I mean, that's an enormous issue that, you know, I think the the Kurdish leaders need to resolve before they even go back to their people i mean how are you going to be self-sufficient the number one investors foreign investors have often been turkish business people some of which are have kurdish links but nevertheless you know are turkish money um you know if you if you lose the the turks on this at least the turkish business community who are often AKP supporters in turkey You don't have viable foreign investors. I mean, so there are so many aspects to this that I think are important. And you know, in the case of of secessionist movements, and I say that really carefully here because it's a secessionist movement. It's it's not just you know if it was if if the Kurdish people were being abused by the Iraqi state, they would have uh, a different uh, sort of. Um, they have a different ability to pitch to the international community their reasoning, but they, they are, for all intents and purposes, a secessionist movement. And to get uh, support for an international secessionist movement, they have to make the case that it's amicable. Um, they have to make the case that they can uh, survive and that this would be a contribution to the international system, not a div- a div- adding a divisive force. And, of course, uh, for many Regional countries, whether it's Iran, Turkey, and even Syria, um, there's great fear that this would cause a domino effect of other, uh, you know, separatist regions that don't have viability on their own, too. So it's, it's an uphill battle for the Kurds. It's not to say that it can't be done. Some have argued that, I think this is a good point, that maybe after uh, Iraq's dependence on hydrocarbons, it might be, you know, a more you know, a more interesting proposal. Um, you know, maybe another 25 years from now, there might uh, be a, a post-hydrocarbon world that we're in, and so the viability becomes more uh, more possible. Um, it might be that indeed, um, you know, Iraq as a project shows that it's disintegrating further, and uh, we do see the kind of clashes that necessitate some sort of separation and that could change the the international community's mind. I mean, there are so many aspects and possibilities to this, but it's just, you know, as it stands right now, um, as an analyst, and this is not, again, a hope and desire for, um, or or an indictment, I should say, on what is the right thing or what should be done, but I just don't see it as an analyst, the the condition uh, ripe for the Kurds to be able to get the international community to agree with them
0: how would you describe the international community's reactions so far? I'm thinking particularly of the u s, where they seem to be riding this line of being sympathetic, but at the same time not willing to hitch itself to any to any wagon, so to speak. can you Can you elaborate on that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, and I'd agree with that assessment absolutely. Um, And you let's not, I mean, going back a little bit too here, let's not forget that Donald Trump kind of emboldened the Kurds. You know, I don't think he really knows what he's talking about half the time. But the reality is he did during the campaign talk about the Kurds as this great fighting force. I mean, I'm sure someone just told him that. And he held on to it as his only one of the few pieces of wisdom that he had about uh, the fight against ISIS. And so that also emboldened the Kurds. Let's not forget that. Um, But again, this is, as we've seen in the U.S., uh, you know, what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth or in his tweets doesn't necessarily mean policy because policy is far more complicated. There is deeper state uh, interest at play here. And I think, you know, once, uh, you know, the, the, the Donald Trump may have said and has said, um, you know, things alluding to this positive support for the Kurds. And in fact, we saw in the Kurdish community and in the Kurdish region you know, sign, you know, Trump restaurant and all these other sort of thank you, Donald Trump. I mean, you know, just a great feeling that they finally found a savior. But uh, unfortunately, um, you know, they'll they'll interpret this as being, um, you know, they were deceived yet again, as history has done to them so often, unfortunately. But I think the truth of the matter is that, you know, once uh, it was presented to him or once the generals had a, a clear look at things. Um, it was very obvious to them that it was not in the U.S. interest to see a Kurdish state at this time, and so they um, they definitely tried to. I think, well, in, in the statements, they walked away from this idea of a divided Iraq. They kept talking about a unified Iraq, that was code to the Kurds that you know we're not supporting your your referendum. Um, but there was also another aspect to this. You know, a few days before. The, um, KR, the, the the Kurdish referendum, the Americans were able to get a deal for Barzani to sit with a body uh, without conditions, which is something that uh, Barzani had wanted for a very long time as part of the negotiations on separation. And, uh, Bar- and, and the deal was that you know that he calls off the election and sit down and have an honest conversation or negotiation with a body about secession. And basically, Barzani said, "No, um, I am going to do it my way." Because he was on a high; he was riding on this this high of Kurdish nationalism globally. Diaspora movements being very supportive of of the Kurdish referendum, and uh, again, he wants a legacy. So, you know, that to the Americans was also, uh, you know, a nail in the coffin of trying to help the Kurds. And they've they've been a bit tougher since then in their statements.
1: And I think it's, you know, probably something that, you know, Barzani may, may regret one day. So before we close here, is there anything you'd like to flag for us that we can maybe expect to see in the coming months, in the near future in this region?
2: Well, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of uh, discussion about, um, about, you know, what is the future for the Kurdish people. Um, there is a separatist movement underway in northern Syria uh, called Rehova, um, obviously, we've seen Kurdish forces, the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are basically Kurdish forces with, uh, I think, cosmetic, uh, you know, Arab fighters amongst them. But it is Syrian Kurdish forces, and, and testament to that is when they went into Raqqa to liberate it, they hoisted up the image of of, uh, of Ocalan. I think that you know this is all uh, going to again come back, uh, just like we saw in how uh, the Kurds were emboldened in, in Iraq, we're going to see similar challenge to the Syrian Kurds. And I would just, and again, as an analyst, I would just warn the Syrian Kurds that, you know, look at what happened in Iraq. So, you know, whatever promises you're getting from U.S. special forces and others who are, you know, often saying that, you know, the Kurds are so great, you know, they don't necessarily have the Kurdish interests at heart. And so that needs to be something that they need to think about. Um, but there's definitely the same dynamics there of emboldening the Kurds um, and uh, this feeling that, you know, the time is ripe for them to, to similarly uh, seek independence. And I would say some of the same dynamics that, you know, were not in their favor um, in the case of, of the Iraqi Kurds stand for the Syrian Kurds as well.
0: Well, it looks like that's all the time we have for today. But thank you, Dr. Mamani, for joining us on Policy Talks and lending us your insightful analytical perspective on this Halloween evening.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Doctor. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. On behalf of the entire team here at Policy Talks, I would like to thank the Carleton University Graduate Students Association for sponsoring our podcast. They provide us with the means to bring you the quality content that we do. They're also a great organization and resource center for Carleton students. You can visit their website at gsacarlton.ca.
0: And of course, this episode was also made possible thanks to the hard work of our production team. Mark Hyken, Rukia Mohammed, Mohamed Galaluddin, Stephen Cook, Samrin Roy, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm
1: Bridget. And I'm Nicole.
0: And this is Policy Talks.